Technicolor Jesus is brought to you in partnership with The Christian Century, a magazine for progressive church leaders. Adam, let's do it. This is Technicolor Jesus, where we talk movies and pop culture with an eye for pastors, preachers, and Sunday school teachers. Today, we're talking with Jeff Chu about the cult classic of high school cheerleading, Bring It On. My name is Matt, and I'm the pastor at University Presbyterian Church in Austin, Texas. And I'm Adam, and I'm a scholar, minister, and teacher in Pennsylvania. And if you're new to the show, here's how it works. We invite guests to the show who pick movies for us to watch, and then we gather up for conversation from our perspective as pastors, as theologians, and as folks who just love movies. This week, our guest Jeff Chu has asked us to go see Bring It On, so we've done it. And in our first segment of the show, Justification by Faith, we're going to ask what this movie has to do with life and ministry, theology, and the world. In our second segment, Preaching to the Choir, we're going to offer some specific ideas for what you might do with Bring It On for this coming lectionary Sunday, which will be October 29th, the 21st Sunday of Ordinary Time. And in our third segment, Postludes, we'll take a second to share another little preacher thought from each of us on something else we're reading, watching, or following. But before we get too far down the line, I want to introduce our guest for this week, Jeff Chu. Jeff is a journalist whose work has appeared in Time, in the New York Times Magazine, in the Washington Post, and elsewhere. He's also the author of the book, Does Jesus Really Love Me? And he is currently a seminarian at my alma mater, Princeton Theological Seminary. On a personal note, he wants us to point out that he loves rice, hates marzipan, and loves the San Francisco 49ers. Jeff, I'm so glad to have you with us. Thanks for being here. I am glad to be with you. Jeff, what kind of rice? Uh, I'm pretty Catholic about rice. Uh, oh, yeah? my, I grew up on jasmine rice, but I'll do a good basmati. Uh, <laughs> good basmati, oh, a nice sushi rice. Like, we're geeking out on rice. This like is, short grain sushi rice that's got a little stickiness to it? I had sushi for lunch. It was delicious. Yeah, yeah. Pro tip, if you're ever in a Thai restaurant, ask for the sticky rice, and they'll bring that to you instead of the basmati. We're providing a lot of different value today on this podcast, <laughs> and I'm, I'm, I'm proud to be a part of it. But let's talk about this movie. Uh, Peyton Reed's 2000 high school comedy, Bring It On, about a white suburban San Diego cheerleading squad that has to adapt once it realizes that its legendarily successful routines have actually been stolen from a minority East Compton high school. This movie is part sports movie. Adam, you know how I like anything that ends up with the team going to nationals. You and me both. But of course, it's part 90s, kind of early 2000s teen romance. It's a movie that launched an empire of direct-to-video sequels, none of which I can say that I've ever seen. But it's also an incisive take on sexuality and cultural appropriation. Adam, a while back, we revisited Clueless and found all sorts of critique just underneath the surface. And I wonder if we'll find the same here. But Jeff, you are the one who picked this out. So start us off. Why bring it on, and why does it matter for the work of the church? Well, I, it's one of the only movies that I've seen multiple times, and I, as a Reformed person, I suppose that is uh, predestined. It wasn't <laughs> by choice. Uh, I guess at, at its most superficial and worst, I wonder sometimes whether the church isn't just a cheerleading squad for Jesus. So I think that's part of the appeal to me. 
I also think there are a lot of themes that resonate with me uh, as someone who's not white, as someone who's gay, uh, themes about insiders and outsiders. Uh, and there are layers to this, right? Because you have the two main cheerleading squads in the movie, the Toros, uh, the rich white girls from the San Diego suburbs, and then the Clovers, uh, the East Compton girls, predominantly African-American. The Toros are the five-time national champions versus the folks who have never been able to go to nationals except vicariously through uh, routines that have been stolen from them. Uh, but even within the Toros, even within uh, the structure of the rich suburbs, you have Torrance, who's the, the captain of the team with an uh, appropriately waspy first name. And then you have Missy, who's the stereotypical talented badass who just moved to town and has not, none of the social credentials and none of the prestige and gets sneered at by some of the other girls. Uh, and of course you have, as another outsider, the nerdy love interest, uh, the guy who's never supposed to get the cheerleader, uh, who is played by Jesse Bradford and may every nerd grow up to be as cute as he is. Yeah, I think the the appeal of this movie of, of the insider and the outsider as a sort of theme of the movie, but also as a theological theme is is perhaps it's most important. It's um, in some ways, it's a movie that's also trying to um, help Torrance, who is the protagonist of the Kirsten Dunn's character, sort of figure out that there is such a thing as an insider and an outsider. In some ways, this movie feels to me like a 2000 era, uh, 2000s era parable about becoming woke. I mean, it's it's a strange way that Torrance has her own journey of realizing that number one, her uh, her cheer squad has stolen all of these routines, but also that there are people outside of herself. I think early in the movie, she says, I am cheerleading. And yet by the end of the movie, I don't think that that's the case any longer. I think it's interesting. I think the arrival of Missy, right, the girl from the outside, when they're doing the auditions for the cheer squad to fill this one empty slot, maybe that's the beginning of her awakening because she sees uh, the younger sister, for instance, of one of her uh, team members who has none of the skills but all of the name. And then she sees this girl who has all the talent. And it really struck me when she goes over to Missy's house to kind of uh, talk to her about the situation. She says to her, you're the best. And they know it. They just reject the unfamiliar. And I think that line, they just reject the unfamiliar, uh, says something about this awakening that Torrance doesn't even realize maybe that she's having. Right. And it's Missy who drives her up to the Clover's um, high school to East Compton, right? Like she's the one who sort of serves as um, as her companion on this journey to show her that like difference exists in the world. Well, she's that worldly urban girl, right? Who for some <laughs> reason got relegated to the suburbs. So there is some use of stereotype uh, and those kind of traditional movie roles. And I think honestly, that's one reason I love this movie is because uh, they do deploy those standard characters, and there is that stereotyping going on. And I like to think that they're doing it knowingly. Uh, maybe they're not. I don't know. Yeah, I think that they do, because there's this movie has some some sly 
and sophisticated ways about thinking about difference and especially the difference of race and socioeconomic class, I think it matters that the mascots are different, that this white San Diego school has a, you know, the Spanish name for a mascot and they all sort of gather under the banner. But more importantly, that East Compton's mascot is, um, is Irish, that they have to sort of congregate themselves under this symbol that was chosen for them by whoever started this school. And these are just small details, but it signals this, this deeper understanding about how life as a teenager, but life as a teenager amid tremendous difference, especially in a place like California, Southern California, for instance, um, doesn't allow you to stay caught in your bubble for too long. And then you have to make a choice. I mean, that seems to me the among the most powerful parts of this movie, if I can use that word to talk about bring it on, um, is that you that Torrance realizes that she's inherited this history or this tradition or these roles from a previous generation, and they don't actually work for her any longer. And she has to realize that like what she has inherited, both these cheers that she has to use on her squad, but also this life and this perception are full of lies. And now she has to construct this new form of identity. Um, and having her come to that realization and go through a few stages to come to a place of real maturity, I think really works in the movie. What's interesting to me is that if we're going to look at this theme of being blind to your own wealth and privilege, Maybe it's a fault of the movie that, that the, some of the background characters never really develop in that way. Right. I think they just kind of stay there and tag along and go to nationals and do their cheering and get their trophies. But I, I, I don't think they really go anywhere as much. Whereas you see Torrance wrestling with those questions of privilege and then her, you know, she makes this failed attempts to play the white savior, right? When she realizes that the Clovers don't have the money to go to nationals and, and she gets her dad's company to cut them a check. So I guess my question, do you feel like the way that the film resolves is satisfying within the critique of kind of wealth and privilege and cultural appropriation that y'all are identifying? I mean, they, they, they go to nationals. Uh, they have the, the, the big contest between these two schools. Finally, the, uh, the Toros have developed kind of, quote unquote, their own choreography, although they develop it by looking for inspiration in all of these kind of normative white spaces. Instead of stealing from the black kids, they're now going to go and watch old musicals and look at a mime act and all of this kind of miscellaneous, uh, miscellaneous other cultural stuff. Uh, they get there, they have the big showdown, and they come in second place. And there's this kind of beat where we're not entirely sure whether or not that's supposed to be success or not. And then Kirsten Dunst kind of cheers, and then everybody else cheers and erupts, and it's a happy ending. And I'm not, and I, and and Kirsten Dunst and Gabrielle Union kind of develop this mutual respect of some shape or another. Uh, and I'm not sure whether or not I'm supposed to feel like they've they've addressed some of the critiques that they've laid out underneath the scenes. And I kind of wonder how that how that conclusion felt for you all. So I appreciated that it ended with mutual respect as opposed to, oh, we're BFFs now, right? Because that would be even more unrealistic for me. 
So there is a kind of distance between the two captains at the end, this kind of grudging acceptance of uh, each squad's talent. As a seminarian, I suppose I'm prone to overthinking everything. So well, that's why we're uh, here. Overthinking, <laughs> overthinking the spiritual themes and lessons of bringing on is a new high or low. <laughs> yeah, this is why we do this every other week. But it has to end neatly, right? She has to get the guy, and I think they did something clever by not letting the Toros win and quote-unquote triumph over their version of adversity. So, I don't know. I give it an A-. minus. <laughs> well, And I think it does recognize that um, there's this moment in the movie where Gabrielle Union, as the captain of the Clovers, says, we just want an opportunity to beat you, right? Like, basically saying, we want a level playing field. And I think, on the one hand, there is this idealism that, um, that all sports movies have, right? Which is that in the, in the boundaries of competition, between the lines on the court or on the field or wherever, um, the best person is going to win. That this is some meritocracy, if there ever was one. But the school also recognizes that there is all sorts of things on the outside of the game that prevent people from actually even getting to the game. And that does feel like an interesting and helpful contribution from this movie to the genre itself. Because, um, yes, it's going to end like every sports movie does. And yet at the same time, it seems to recognize that the contextual portion of this um, and the power discrepancies uh, between these two squads actually does wear on people. You know, no one from the Toros has to figure out how to write a letter to raise money. In fact, they just they have fathers, either fathers with money or fathers at powerful companies who can cut checks. And um, and this movie at least recognizes that. And that makes it unique. I think it does poke at the illusion of the le uh, level playing field. There's that part where she's approaching her dad for the money and she actually says to him, and I think this is where the social commentary part of the movie is powerful. It's subtle, but powerful. She says, it's not that much money, Mr. Level Playing Field Milk Toast White Guy. Do the right thing, Dad. Right. I, I don't mean, actually think that is something that a high school cheerleading captain would say to her father, but I appreciated it anyway. Right. And Matt, as you think about this, I mean, with regard to the church, um, I think the white church in particular, especially the white mainline church, hasn't fully reckoned with its history of exploitation and appropriation. No. Um, as you think about its long history, at least in this country, of the traditions that we're a part of, like, uh, how does this movie help you think about that? Well, I immediately started thinking about the Presbyterian hymnal, um, which, uh, you know, historically, uh, the my denomination, which has historically been a fairly white and privileged denomination, has, you know, has a hymnody that stems heavily from kind of white European ancestry and a lot of frontier Methodist hymns. Uh, and over time, over the last 20 years or so, the new versions of the hymnal have um, tried to become more 
globally aware and diverse, and we've done a better job of including hymns from other traditions, including hymns from the African-American experience, including hymns from um, uh, kind of uh, global worship places and um, from African churches and from uh, East Asian churches. And I, I kind of, I this the movie kind of helps me question what happens when we sing those and what happens in that space of appropriation. I mean, in one sense, I feel like hymns are really different. Like a hymn is written so that other people will sing it. And a hymn is written mm-hmm. so that other people will share it. It's different than like, you know, I wouldn't go on YouTube and grab a sermon and just reuse it regardless of the cultural background of the person who was giving it. Uh, but I, I do think that there are places in our worship and in our cheerleading, as it were, that 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 run up against these kind of these kind of cultural barriers, and I think that we have not done a great job of kind of interrogating what it means for us to do that. So I think of a song like "Swing Low, Sweet Chariot," right, which has been sung in some churches that I've attended, and that is a song that was sung by slaves. That was a song that was sung, sung by sharecroppers. Uh, that was a song that was really wrapped up in a lot of uh, the history and the culture uh, that we can't understand when we take it and sing it in a predominantly white congregation. Uh, and that's fascinating to me. It, that's fascinating and ties into you know, this long history of white appropriation of African-American talent. Uh, you see it not just in the arts and movies, but you also see it in, in how basically like football players, basketball players, they're commodified. They become an object for uh, people to be entertained. And I think there is loss in that. There is some dehumanization where it's stripped out of the context and not given the full narrative. Yeah. And so, I mean, Swing Low, Sweet Chariot is such a good example um, because it feels uh, uh, acutely tied in to uh, the particularly slave, particular slave experience that's generating this idea, this song, this inspiring, this, um, this music. Um, and to Matt's point, the, our hymnals are filled with slave spirituals. So to what extent is it the responsibility of white churches not to like fully understand the slave experience, but to reckon with their long history of supporting and aiding white supremacy and cultural appropriation and these different um, ways in which this song has arrived in the hymnal precisely um, because of churches like ours and we have inherited a privilege and a power um, that doesn't recognize, I mean, the pain from which this comes. I don't know. I don't know if we can ever really go back and, and understand where these hymns come from. And yet there are still times in my life where I've seen slave spirituals, things that I find compelling and deep and, and, aid my worship, I think, and still think I have not yet totally reckoned with the white supremacy that has created this thing, or at least inspired it. 
So there's a moment in the movie that I find to be deeply and provocatively Christian. And this might be controversial, but (laughs) (laughs) there's this moment where uh, four of the Clovers go to a Toros football game. And they stand there at the front of the stands. And as the Toros are doing a stolen cheer, the Clovers join in the cheer and then take over the cheer as if to say to the entire crowd, you need to know where this comes from. And I say that it's deeply and provocatively Christian because this is, uh, once again, the minority that has had something taken from them coming and doing the work of educating white people. Yeah. And I find that actually to be an act of grace because they don't have to do it. They don't really gain much from taking the time uh, to leave their comfort zone, to leave their community, to leave East Compton and go to the suburbs of San Diego where nobody looks like them. It doesn't really gain them anything. And I, I think that is what so often I see really powerful preachers doing. I see folks like William Barber in North Carolina mm-hmm. doing that, taking the story to the people who need to hear it, even if you don't think they deserve to, even if you think they should be doing their own work to recognize what they have taken from other people. I, yeah, and I think that that's what's been important for me to see lately is that that's a calling in and of itself, right? That um, that 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 the expectation of white people is that any minority should be their teacher, when in actuality there's like there are people who should and can and will opt out of having to play that role, and yet then then there are people who play that role at great sacrifice to themselves and um and their goals and their visions for the world on behalf of other people and and like you said that is a grace. Um, the the hard part is helping white congregations realize that grace uh, in a way that sort of compels them to do their own education. Mm-hmm. Um, there is plenty to uh, to learn. I mean, part one of the syllabus is watch Bring It On. i would take that class (laughs) um but yeah but there um to constantly look to every um every black person to represent black experience for you or every asian person to represent all of asian experience for you or something like that um misunderstands the role um or the call i think that certain people have. And some people are called to be teachers and some people aren't, and that's okay too. Uh, the, the sort of white savior moment that you talk about earlier, Jeff, um, where Torrance comes with this charity, uh, I appreciate this movie recognizes that, um, that while this is good intentioned, she still has a, a ways to go. She has no relationship with these people. She has, um, she knows them only as the people from whom she's stolen. Uh, and that to then just hand them a bag full of money uh, is to disrespect them and their own history. And I think churches can learn from that as well, too, um, especially with the ways in which they conceive of mission and mission to places of low socioeconomic 
um, status or class or the international church or other different places that I think there's a lot of people who just kind of show up with the check and say, like, aren't we doing a good thing so that our high school students can go back and write their college essay that says, like, right. I I went to South America and I thought that I was going to help a group of people. But really, they helped me. Um, who wants to hear that narrative any longer? I think that question of motive is super important. I worked at a church where it was fascinating. It was in a rich community. And the some of the women of the church once a month cooked a meal for the clients of a local soup kitchen. What was startling to me was that they cooked the meal in the church's kitchen. And then someone from the soup kitchen came and picked it up hmm. so that they never <laughs> wow. had any interaction with the folks who were receiving the meal. And to me, that just lasered in on their focus, which was to make themselves feel better. And it really dehumanized uh, the clientele of the soup kitchen. There were no faces. There were no names. This was an act of pure self-serving charity. And I think there is this wake up for Torrance when she goes and has the check ripped up in, in front of her face where she realizes and is forced to confront the fact that uh, these other cheerleaders are human beings and they have agency and they can choose to reject that charity or to receive it. I think that story would be really familiar to a lot of churches. It certainly is familiar to some of the places that I have worked and served as well. But I, I don't want us to run out of time on this movie without talking a little bit about gender, too. Um, no, it's interesting now in 2017, I think this movie reads so much into this cultural appropriation question, but when it came out, it was, uh, it was read so much more around questions of gender, especially in this kind of cheerleading landscape. Uh, in the, his original review in the New York times, AO Scott, um, talks about this movie as, uh, where that has a plot that resembles, quote, a flimsy scaffolding for the shameless exploitation of young women in short skirts. I don't think we see it that way anymore, but I kind of wanted to push the question on you all. Is there a tension here between the display of the bodies of these cheerleaders, male and female both, and the ways in which the story tries to give them agency? How does it feel to watch this movie and think about the sexuality and the gender dynamics that are going on behind the scenes? So I'm kind of torn on this because I feel like there are moments where the movie pokes at those conventions about what your standard hot cheerleader looks like. So when Sparky, the crazy cheerleading coach, shows up, he goes down the line of the cheerleaders and judges them physically. And I, I felt like that was a satirical moment where he says, you, you have weak ankles. You, one of your calves is bigger than the other. Right. You, what's with the skin? Say it with me. Sunlight. Too much makeup. Not enough makeup. So it was so uh, glib. And how could you do anything but mock that, right? But then there are also other moments where I did feel like they were kind of objectifying uh, the men and the women. And they were engaging in a little, if there is such a thing, playful homophobia that makes me cringe now as a gay yeah, person. Sure. Uh, the, the freedom with which they used the terms dykes and fags, for instance. I, I, I was wondering, like, would you, could you do that in 2017? Yeah, there's so, a casualness with it all that, that feels a little overwhelming. 
Yeah. yeah. So I'm really torn on this. Were they uh, clever enough to put some of those cues in there, but not clever enough to go all the way? Or were they just blind to some things? I'm not really sure. Well, and, and additionally, in the wake of all of this Harvey Weinstein, all the Harvey Weinstein stories, like there's there's a moment of sort of casual sexual assault that yeah. that just sort of like flies by. And I, it was hard to sort of be reading the stories of women in um, in Hollywood and then to see this sort of like Hollywood picture from the early aughts, which was sort of really dominated by, <laughs> by Miramax, among other um, important studios and think like, oh boy, that feels, that feels really bad. Yeah. Like, right. Isn't that part of the cultural problem? It was like, a joke in this movie. It was, yeah. And it, it stuck out in a way that was hard to watch, even though it's like very minor in passing, at least within the scope of the story as it's told, but it stood out in a way that maybe in 2000, I don't think it would have stood out. Um, and I don't think that sort of the casual homophobia would have stood out in quite the same way then either. And and yet there are these moments, too, where they the the cheerleaders seem to know that they're being exploited. There seems to be some understanding. This is why they put on a car wash at one point. Right. Because yeah. they need to they need to make money. And if they're going to make money like they have an asset that they know can like raise them the fifteen hundred dollars that they need. And the movie does something really interesting at that moment, which is it actually takes the camera out of the director's hands and then puts it into the hands of one of the other cheerleaders, right? Like it, it turns into a home video. Um, and I wonder if that's just to give us like one more layer so it doesn't feel like there's an, a, an older white man sort of using a camera to ogle right. young women. I think the messiness of this and the questions we have, it, it kind of reflects the reality of our existence and our life together. We, we don't have clarity and we do have to struggle with some of these things and we do have to risk overthinking everything. So I guess I appreciate that about the movie it, and watching it now. Uh, I don't think I've seen this movie in like 10 years. It, it, your eyes change, your eyes change over time. And, and I'm grateful for that. It, I'm glad to have a control to know what I was thinking about the movie or not thinking about the movie 10 years ago, as opposed to now. But it does play with stereotypes. You know, the, the, the fact that the football team is a bunch of losers and the, and the cheerleaders are a bunch of winners, that the real athletes, the, the ones that we're supposed to root for and recognize have some real physical talent, um, are the cheerleaders instead of the typical football players, is actually... I think a pretty sophisticated take on on gender athleticism and the genre. Yeah, I mean, this is. I wanted us to get to this point before we ran out of ran out of time. I mean, this is the only kind of team based sports movie for that features women that I can think of where they end up at nationals at the end. I mean, you've got a and and y'all will think of some options that I haven't thought of, but you've got a few that are set in. Uh, a, a women's sporting landscape like uh, Bend It Like Beckham or A League of Their Own, but mm -hmm. not in that kind of super genre form formula where th this is a competition and the team has to pull together and we have to go win at the end. The kind of uh, Hoosiers slash Miracles slash Major League kind of genre space that has been so masculine. And I think it's th the refreshing thing for me here was to see that in a women's sports arena and to see it kind of unapologetically there.
And it's interesting that you put it there because I really think more about movies like Pitch Perfect, right? right. With acapella groups. I don't, I, I, I really honestly didn't think of it. And this is maybe my uh, bias and problem. I didn't see it, see it as a sports movie. I didn't think of it as a sports movie so much as kind of an artsy thing. Yeah, I mean, and that may be just from my own background. I'm totally willing to own that. Although they do have the ESPN commentator at the end, so I'll hang my hat there a little bit. But I think, (laughs) yeah, and I think Pitch Perfect is the other one that this really pairs with. I think you can make an argument that Pitch Perfect becomes a sports movie there just because of all the genre conventions that it has, even though they're not athletic in the same way. But yeah, absolutely. We are grateful for our partnership with the Christian Century and want to guide your attention to the great work that they're doing. I want to direct your attention to the recent article by Noah Marins about the legacy of Luther's anti-Semitism, especially in light of the current Reformation anniversary that's going on this year. Uh, Marins is a conservative rabbi and heads up the interfaith work of the American Jewish Committee. And I had a good chance to spend some time with Noam in Israel this summer and talk about this subject with him. And he's really come up with uh, what I think is a really lovely and important article. Um, he does a really good job of detailing Luther's virulent past um, and some of the more bright sources of hope um, that are arising out of this troubling history of Luther's. So I want to commend Noam's most recent article, which is in the Christian Century. It is totally worth um, We will link to it on our show page, and we think that you should all go read it because it's really good. And also, if you're listening and you don't yet subscribe to the Christian Century, Technicolor Jesus listeners can get a free trial uh, magazine subscription. For more information, visit christiancentury.org slash podcast offer. That's christiancentury.org slash podcast offer. All right, Adam and Jeff, let's move on to preaching. This segment is called Preaching to the Choir, and we're going to look at the lectionary passages for year A, the 21st Sunday in Ordinary Time, which is Reformation Sunday. Happy birthday to us, 500 years. We did it. Oh, we did it. We made it. So we've got Moses standing and looking at the promised land before he dies in Deuteronomy. We've got a passage in Leviticus about caring for the community, a Thessalonians, Thessalonians passage with that great image of a nurse caring for her children. We've got Jesus giving his two commandments and an addic- additional vexing question. So Jeff, as you think about Bring It On, what resonates for you for the preaching task for the week? I think it's really folly to try to draw <laughs> preaching lessons and bring it on. And I uh, warn preachers, it's got to be desperate times before you use this as a preaching illustration, right? Uh, you left out the psalm. I don't know why you did that. Do you usually not talk about the psalm? I love the psalms, and I love preaching the psalm. Uh, I think that's my fault. I just think uh, I wrote that copy, and I don't know where. I just think I passed over it. <laughs> as I was reading it, I was thinking... Adam left out the psalm. It's such a good psalm. (laughs) It is a good psalm, and I shouldn't have left it out. Mea culpa, Jeff and Matt. So there's something in the Clover's journey, right? Uh, This experience of these women who have had something taken from them for a very long time, who are constantly subjected to that form of theft, that I think testifies a little bit to the kind of perseverance that we see in Psalm 90, uh, which says, make us glad as many days as you have afflicted us and as many years as we have seen evil. So you see this cheerleading squad that has to overcome much larger obstacles than their rivals do to get to the same place. 
and it takes them so much time. And yet there is that sense that this is an annual thing. It passes away so quickly. Uh, the psalm talks about how you know, the grass is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. And so there is this element of, uh, of wonderful perseverance and at the same time the stuff that they're doing, uh, these earthly transactions are, are so ephemeral. So I love that. I love that psalm. It is, it's a really good psalm. I shouldn't have let her, left it out. <laughs> it's really good. I mean, as you talk, Jeff, I'm, I'm, I'm moved by it. It's just that, that movement of the ephemerality of life while connecting to like, we'll make what life I do have because it's passing away so quickly, like worth it. Um, it's, it's incredible. Like turn, turn, oh God, come and have compassion. Like we, we need it because life is really hard. And, um, and I think this movie doesn't take cheerleading so seriously, but takes seriously people who take cheerleading seriously, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Right. Like it, I, it does in the vein of the Psalm, like it has it cares that people make meaning from something that itself might be so ephemeral. Well, and there are moments in the movie that nod at spirituality, that nod at the level of import that they put on the cheerleading. For instance, they have that spirit stick, and they talk several times about if you drop that spirit stick, bad things will happen. The person who drops it, they actually say, goes to Hades. Right. <laughs> Why did they choose Hades? It's such a funny decision. <laughs> it was so bizarre. And then you see another moment uh, before Nationals where one of the squads is kneeling and praying the Lord's Prayer. So I think somehow, whether consciously or unconsciously, the directors of the movie knit into it some spiritual themes. Uh, the other one that comes to mind when I'm looking at the lectionary is uh, Matthew 22, where Jesus is talking about the greatest commandments, right? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind, and then you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And I think Bring It On asks over and over, who is my neighbor? Right. Uh, who is my neighbor and how do I treat my neighbor? And that is something that's uh, also woven into the film. Yeah, and I would throw Psalm 1 in there too, which is the other psalm for the day. And it asks that question of like, what is the outcome that we seek by trying to follow God's commandments? I think we get that a little bit in the film, which, which is the question of like, what is, what is Kirsten Dunst hoping for by changing her behavior, by rewriting the materials, by rewriting the choreography, by kind of changing the long history of the Toros? Uh, it's not first place. I mean, maybe they thought they might get first place at nationals, but they don't. And I think the satisfaction out of second there is really interesting because it suggests a kind of broader satisfaction in having kind of done something morally decent as opposed to seeking success for its own sake. Uh, and I, I'm, I'm kind of struck by that moment in this psalm because it is, blessed are those who meditate on the law of the Lord. Um, they will be like the, fruit, the tree whose fruit ripens in its season, which is a beautiful image and also kind of ephemeral. It's something that occasionally will bear fruit and occasionally won't. 
and second place seems like one of those in between times and i think that's that's okay but in addition to that matt i mean second place is this moment of like real joy for everyone i'm i like you said earlier there's a beat between whether or not they're going to be happy with this or not happy, but then they do, they, they're overjoyed with this. And I think that that contrasts with this earlier part of the movie where Torrance's boyfriend who's gone off to college and is, um, is sleeping with other women tells her like, I just want to see you happy. And his solution to seeing her happy is to reorder the world so that it was exactly like it was previously so that they can win. And then they can do what they used to do that always won. Right. And yet the movie says like, well, no, like this journey, the point isn't happiness. The point is um, growth. It is service to some sort of larger ideal or virtue or truth. Um, happiness is not ultimately goal. the goal, but in service of that truth, even second place can make you really happy. It can, um, when you seek happiness for its own sake, I mean, I think this is in many ways the uh, the way that the powerful preserve their position by refusing to be anything but happy or seek anything but happiness. Um, it means that they don't ever actually have to deal with the pain that comes from learning something. Mm. And this movie is about a, a teenage girl who learns something. And learning hurts so often. It's, it's really painful. I think there's this great portion of Bell Hooks's book, Teaching to Transgress, where she talks about how, as a teacher, she had to come to terms with the fact that she's going to hurt her students. And like opening their eyes to the world actually causes them great pain, yet it's really necessary. Um, that there is, there's in service of some larger ideal, you're going to have to get past happiness. And yet, when you finally do get past seeking happiness, like joy and happiness seems to sort of arrive. Guys, I'm going to push you a little bit on this because, okay. and I can't believe that I'm going to debate some of your theology that's knit into bringing on because this is one of the <laughs> weirder moments in my life. But it's such a classically American way of thinking to think that second at nationals is losing. Oh, fair. Ah. Yeah, yeah, sure. True. Fair. Fair. So why shouldn't you be happy to get second in the entire country? Uh, and, and so I think that's really fascinating. Uh, to bring it back to the psalm, it points to people uh, who are like trees whose leaves don't wither, right? There's a lasting element to that. Uh, and I think that's where maybe the movie doesn't go all the way because we just begin to see the sketches of relationship and we begin to see the brief outlines of some deeper reward, which you might say is relationship across these communities. Uh, certainly, I don't see uh, the romance between Torrance and, and her nerdy boyfriend as the lasting reward. Uh, but I, I wonder if, if we just have to go a little bit deeper. I mean, in defense of the second place argument, I think it does come about because they have inherited this legacy of winning first place. I mean, so if they if they were coming from not having a history of competing there at all, then yeah, second, like, great, absolutely, anyone would be re would rejoice. I do think the movie posits it as a kind of uh, as not the outcome that they would have rejoiced at at the beginning. Um, because their frame of reference for what quote-unquote success looks like has changed. 
Um, it's not certainly not failure, but I don't think it's what they would have. It's not what Big Red would have hoped for them from the beginning of the film. Well, hopefully this conversation has been a little bit more faithful and a little bit more fruitful, but it is time for us to say goodbye to Jeff and move on. Jeff, thank you so much for taking the time to hang out with us and chat with us. I appreciate it. Thanks, guys. It's been fun, and I am never going to watch Bring It On the same way again. I hope not. Well, <laughs> neither am I. Thanks for suggesting it, and thanks for taking it serious enough you know, to have this conversation, Jeff. We appreciate it. Next time, it's we'll go into all of the direct-to-video sequels. We'll have to do the whole anthology. A series. Yeah. Awesome. Excellent. Thanks, Jeff. Take care. Now it's time for our last segment. This is called Postludes, and it's just another chance to get a little preacher thought from each of us on something else we're watching or following. So, Matt, what's your postlude for the week? All right. So, longtime fans of this show will not in any way be surprised to learn that I am a longtime and lifetime fan of Star Trek. <laughs> so of course yeah. i am now watching star trek discovery on cbs all access streaming every sunday night the show is fine it's like high concept serial drama it wants to be like the walking dead or game of thrones of the star trek universe complete with its own talk show after show where they kind of dissect everything it, it, it's fine they they haven't made all the decisions that I would make, and they have made some decisions that I would not have thought of. And certainly the tone is a lot different than like watching Next Generation, but that's to be expected. The thing is that it is a thousand percent better for me than not having Star Trek. So <laughs> and this is the realization that I ultimately had when I was trying to figure out, because they aired the first two episodes on the CBS network. And then everyone had to decide whether or not they were going to go pay $5.99 a month for the chance to watch the rest of the show on CBS All Access Streaming, because it is not on broadcast. CBS All Access Streaming is not a great service. They do not have all of their algorithms figured out like Netflix does. And the other catalog available to me on CBS All Access is like not stuff that I would ever watch, with the sole exception of the fact that they own the back catalog of other Star Trek shows because here I am. But the thing was, as I wrestled with this, after watching a kind of mediocre pilot, that I wanted CBS to know that I support the existence of Star Trek on my television. So I signed up. And apparently not just me, it actually sparked a single-day record for CBS All Access signups. And as I reflected on this, I cannot help but in my own church pastor mode, realizing that this is actually a stewardship message. Huh. It's stewardship season at my church, like it is at many kind of mainline institutional churches. And part of my job as a pastor is to get up and convince folks to pay a monthly fee for a service whose catalog is not going to be entirely satisfying to them. And that doesn't always entirely work the way that they want it to work. I mean, church can be an eminently disappointing place for people all the time, right? We have so many different programs and there's so much spiritual care involved and, some, and it breaks all the time and it doesn't always work well. Uh, and so I feel like among the various pitches involved, alongside the kind of good theology of why giving is good for us, period. The, the pitch seems to be, 
the world is a better place with this thing in it than it would be without. And hmm. and I yeah. so I guess kind of the way that I feel about Star Trek Discovery is the way that I feel about church right now, which is, you know, one of those sentences that only in the context of this podcast makes any sense to me. But nonetheless, like I am I am not always happy with it and I am not always thrilled with it and I am not always astounded by it but i am gladder that it exists than i than that it doesn't and so here we are 5.99 a month is not a is not a bad price for that that's what i've got adam so that's i mean that's so intriguing because i feel like as ministers so often we know all of the bad parts of church and we continue to see all of the problems um just with the institutional church as a whole but then we are faced with all of its troubling history as well. Sure. You know, and this is the same with, with the institute, the, the cultural institutions that we love too. You know, there are parts of, of Star Trek that, you know, perhaps aren't the most uh, progressive things in the world. Um, though that there are is like some very progressive things. In Star absolutely. Trek. But I, I think mean, I would say more progressive than not for its time at any moment, but yes, absolutely. You know, and yet to have that opportunity to love it again i i feel this way i there was like in a small way a, a f- by circumstance like four or five weeks where i didn't get to get to church i was doing something and then another thing came up then i got sick whatever and then when i finally came back i went to a worship service and it was mostly terrible and i was so glad i was there and i don't i don't know how to square that in my life except that i i have well this will move me to my my postlude. I have really two institutions that I am loyal to um, and will show up for. Um, and one is the church, right? Like I don't, I don't like institutions. I don't, I don't believe in institutions, but the church I'm, I ride for. And the second is the national basketball association, <laughs> um, <laughs> which began its season last week after a long layoff, which was, hard for me because i i like watching sports i appreciate watching sports i think football um it makes me mostly sick when i watch it now and baseball is too slow and um and i was dying for basketball and i was just um i was nourishing myself on like old basketball games on hardwood classics and by watching summer league games um but we got back into the basketball season last week and the thing that was so interesting about this season for me is that it is mostly or almost totally preordained. If you ask any analyst or any real fan of the NBA, who's going to win the title? It's the Yankees, right? Ever, yeah, the Yankees. <laughs> 27 rings. going to be 28. Um, everyone is confident that the Golden State Warriors are going to win. And barring some catastrophic inter- injuries, that no one actually hopes for who is, you know, a real human being with right. a moral compass. Sure. Um, everyone is fairly confident, is confident that Golden State is going to win the championship. Now, there's still a whole season to play, be played, but I want to sort of revel in that confidence and realize that even though everyone is confident, the excitement for this particular season, as long as I've been alive, has never been higher. 
the anticipation of the season and how it's going to play out is reaching this fever pitch. And there's all sorts of articles. And so I spend lots of time procrastinating reading basketball articles about new players on new teams and new narratives that are showing up and new players and how they're going to uh, integrate in Philadelphia right now. They're like, this city is going crazy for a basketball team. That's been historically terrible over the last five years. And they have like real hope. And so I'm walking around with all of these stories bouncing around in my head and thinking, man, this is amazing, while also knowing how it's all going to end. And everyone is excited to see how it gets there. And so I'm struck by the idea that knowing the end also frees me up to appreciate so many other possibilities that are happening now in the present. And so I get to appreciate all of the small glories of the season, like all of these small little narratives that I would never really realize if I were worried about who was going to win. And so even though I know who's going to win, it's not more boring. It's actually more exciting. And by some strange circumstance. And I couldn't help but think this is also the posture of the church. Right. That, you know... Our faith is based on these promises. And the grand thing about that is that the confidence in the promise actually frees us up for joy and excitement in the present. And moreover, when our faith in the promise begins to wane, that excitement turns more to anxiety. Mm -hmm. Um, I know that the team that I love the most, the Los Angeles Clippers, is not going to win. But I am so excited for their season this um, this year than I have been in, in probably 10 years. And so I'm sort of wrestling with that little idea as I try and think about how knowing the end actually frees me to be excited about the present. So Adam, are, are you, do you know that it's the end of this show? <laughs> I'm looking at the clock. Yeah. About time. I gotta go pick up my kid from preschool. So, so yeah. So welcome to the end. This is the end of the show. Uh, one more thanks to Jeff for hanging out with us today. Uh, next episode, Adam, we're going to be talking with Brennan Breed, who is Old Testament scholar at Columbia Seminary, who's going to take some time out to chat with us. Uh, and so here, by the magic of the internet, he is to introduce the movie to us. Hey, Adam and Matt. It's Brennan Breed from Columbia Theological Seminary, and I want us to watch the classic movie The Third Man for the next podcast. I'm looking forward to it. Adam, I love this movie so much. I love it so much. It is so, I, it's a joy to watch, you know? Yeah. I'm so, I'm so excited. Uh, Thanks for listening folks. And don't forget to subscribe to the show on iTunes. If you like it, leave us a rating, leave us a review, tell a friend. Every little bit helps other folks find the show. Special thanks, of course, to our friends at the Christian Century and also to Garrett Mostowski, the sound wizard who is doing so much for us right now. Our music was composed by Bobby Brinkerhoff. Big thanks to him and his band, One Little, Two Little, Three Little Indians. Thanks, Adam. Have a good night. Yeah. See you, man.